Amen. It is indeed good to gather with God's people. Every Friday when we do so, we see our God revealed. He is revealed to us as we read His Word, as we sing His Word, as we will now hear His Word proclaimed. He is revealed, and then we respond to Him with worship. That is what we're about, is seeing our God and responding with hearts that are gripped by His incredible, indescribable beauty and glory. And so today, as we continue in our teaching since Romans chapter 8, as we see our God revealed, we are looking at a series called Focused, Living a Gospel-Centered Life. Now the word focus, we use it all the time, but let's define our terms. The word focus means the center of your interest or your activity. So what you're focused on is what has your attention. But the word focus also can refer to the state of having clear visual definition. And so focus can refer to having clarity, being able to see something very clearly that is in focus. So when we talk about focus, then living a life of focus, which is by definition a gospel-centered life, what I'm talking about is being able to have our entire lives, our attention focused on the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ with clarity so that we can clearly see who God is and who we are in relation to Him. So when all of our attention is focused on Him and it's crystal clear to us, then we will live a life that is truly victorious, a life that is pleasing to Christ, a life that is filled with fruitfulness and a life that is filled with fulfillment as we follow our master Jesus Christ. So we must focus on this gospel. And the reason is that we are selfish and we are sinful and we are corrupted. And these are not things that we like to say about ourselves, but the Bible says that it's true. The, the gospel reveals that it's because of our sin that God sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who became a human being at the first Christmas. He lived a life of perfection and holiness, died on the cross for you and for me, enduring, as we just sung, our shame, our guilt, our wrath. He endured it, paid it all, resurrected powerfully, which we'll celebrate next month at Easter. And so now anyone that responds to this gospel with faith and repentance is saved from their sins and has the Spirit of God living inside of them, empowering them to follow the Master and to live a life of joy. I mean, this is what it's about, is the opportunity, the privilege of being able to know God, enjoy Him forever, and experience indescribable joy. And it's only possible because Jesus came and paid it all. And when Spirit lives inside of you, when you're a follower of Jesus, you have a new heart, you have new desires, and yet, we live in a fallen world, and we are not yet in heaven. We are still fallen, and we still have remaining sin inside of us. So even though the Spirit is progressively making us more holy, making us more like Jesus, we still have these vestiges of the old man, this old self. We still have remaining sin in our lives, and so we must continue on, focus on Christ and His gospel. 
every one of us has struggles with sin. Maybe my flavor is different from your flavor, but we still have sins that we gravitate towards, have a propensity towards. And if you're like me, and I, I know if you're a follower of Jesus, and you were up late last night dancing with Chris Tomlin, and, and you're tired this morning after five hours of sleep, and yet I know that you're here, and you want desperately to follow Jesus. That's why you're here. You really want to. That is your heart's desire. With all of your soul, you love singing his praises, and you love hearing his word, and you desire to follow him who died for you. You really do want to. And yet, at times, it really is a struggle. We want to desperately reflect his goodness and his truth and his beauty. That's what we want as followers of Jesus. But we're so weak. Every one of us is so weak, we cannot do it alone. We need the Spirit of God to help us to follow our Master. Let's read in Romans chapter 8. Our text for this morning is just two verses. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. As we continue our series in Romans 8, let's read these two verses. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Two sentences, two verses, powerful and profound. Let me give you the primary truth, the overarching truth from this text. The main idea is that the Holy Spirit helps disciples to follow Jesus. That's what it is. This is describing to us that the Holy Spirit helps disciples to follow the Master, to follow Jesus. He helps us. We've been learning about, through this chapter, how He sanctifies us. He makes us more holy. As we yield to Him, He, he creates in His hearts that are more like Christ, have more character that would reflect that of Christ. And so this text here is further expanding on that from this chapter. And the focus here is that the Spirit helps believers specifically through prayer. And so prayer is the fuel for living a gospel-centered life. So it's fuel, it's petrol, or we say gas in the U.S., right? That's what this is. And so when you are living a life of prayer, what you're doing is, is the Spirit is not working inside of you, and it gives you spiritual energy to go ahead and pursue Jesus more. And so today's sermon is gospel-centered life. There's power in prayer. And so no prayer, no spiritual power. A life of prayer. And you will have much spiritual vitality and much spiritual power that the Spirit will do. He empowers us to live a gospel-centered life through prayer. Now, by the way, just so we define our terms and what prayer is, because we live in a, in a country where most people pray, but the way others pray, and what we're talking about here from God's Word, is two different things. Prayer is not a way for you to earn credits with God. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is communing with God. That's what it is. Prayer is communion with God. So when we pray, we are talking to and spending time with the Father. And so it is having communion 
Because remember why God made you. God made you so that you could know Him and enjoy Him forever. And so prayer is an expression of that. We're on this side of heaven where we can't see Him face to face. And yet, when we pray, we enter into this communion, this relationship. And we have the relationship because Jesus made it possible. His Spirit is inside of you. But we have to focus our thinking and intentionally spend time talking to God. And prayer is quite simply communion with God. And every believer prays. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you pray. Now, your prayers may be very brief. Your prayers might be emergency prayers. God, help me. God, I need this. But we all pray. It is not possible to be a believer in Jesus and not pray. If you never, ever pray to God, then you should look in the spiritual mirror and ask the question, do I know God? Because every believer prays. Jesus says that when you pray, he assumes that we do because we're following him. And our desire is to delight and spend time with him. And yet, prayer is a struggle. It is. Prayer is not something that is always easy for us to do. It can be a struggle. But we have to persevere in it. It says in this text that even our prayers, that we're, there's this weakness, even in praying. And so we need the Spirit to help us, even in things like prayer. It says that we don't pray even as we ought. So this morning we're going to contemplate how the Holy Spirit helps disciples to follow Jesus, but specifically in relation to prayer. But how? How does that work? How does the Holy Spirit help us in prayer? Because it's easy to say, but let's make sure that we have clarity, that we really understand what this means. In these two verses, we look at two truths about how the Holy Spirit helps disciples to follow Jesus through prayer. First one, He helps us by interceding for us. So the first truth is that the Holy Spirit helps us by interceding for us. We see that in verse 26, first half of the verse. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. It says, But the Spirit intercedes for us. And so it says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's assuming that we already have a weakness with prayer. I mean, this is assuming that every one of us is going to struggle, that it is going to be a weakness. Due to sin in our hearts, it's going to be difficult at times. We can all be weak. And it says specifically here that we don't even know what to pray for. It says we don't even know. Now you're thinking, well, that's crazy. Of course I know what to pray for. Well, it's not as easy as you think. I'm going to give you a few examples of how all of us can have moments where we honestly don't even know what to pray for. Suppose you're given a job offer, and then you're given a second job offer, and you have two, and they're both good job offers. Which one do you take? Neither one is immoral or immoral. They're both just two jobs. You have to pick one. What if you're a young person, and you're choosing which school to go to? How do you decide which school you should go to? I was talking to a young man this week in our church. He, he's graduating from college, has a chance to go work for a very lucrative company and do very well, but he wants to stay in Abu Dhabi. He wants to stay here. 
because he sees it as a place that is strategic for the gospel. And so he's trying to start a business, but he has to choose between, do I stay here and start a business or go make a whole lot of money with another company? Two good options. What if, what if you, adult, have a grown child? All right, so your children are, are adults. And one of them is not following Jesus. And it's evident. By lifestyle, Facebook posts, it's clear they're not following Jesus. And then something happens. And it's really hard for your child, your, but again, adult child. What do you pray for? Do you pray that it gets even harder? Do you pray that your son's life gets so miserable and so broken that they hit rock bottom so badly that they will finally repent and realize that they're not in control of their life and believe in Jesus? So do you pray, God, make it worse for my son? so that he'll turn to you? Or do you pray, God, deliver him. God, help this problem to be resolved and heal the marriage or whatever the problem is. What do you pray for? How do you know what you should ask for in that situation? What if you have an elderly parent? Do you pray that this elderly parent who is really ill, that they be healed and live a few more years? Or do you pray, God, just take my mom home? What do you pray for? Not always so easy, not always so clear-cut. What if you've lived a life of a habitual pattern of sinfulness and you've finally been exposed and you've been caught that you've had this pattern of, of private sin and it's come out and now you've repented. You really have and you want to walk in purity and follow Jesus and you're like, I don't even know how to live life without that Addiction that I used to have, and you're just praying, God, how do I even function anymore? There are times, if we're really honest, that there are situations in our lives that will come up that it's not so easy to know what to pray for. It can be complex. Life isn't always easy and straightforward, and the Scriptures give us principles to follow, as we'll see this morning. But it's not always so easy. I remember when I was 20 years old, which was 14 years ago. You can do the math. 20 years old, I was in university, and I had been dating my lovely, at the time, girlfriend, Bonnie, for two years. And I wanted to marry her. There was no confusion in my mind. It was clarity. I wanted her to be my bride. No questions asked. And she wanted to marry me. It was an easy decision, too, right? Easy. Of course. Want to marry me. So there was no confusion for us on that. We wanted to marry each other. We loved each other deeply. And yet we had a problem, a serious problem. And I, I'm not exaggerating. This is the real problem that we had 14 years ago, is that she wanted to marry someone that would go and carry the gospel beyond the borders of the United States. She did not want to marry a pastor who was going to stay and lead a church and live a whole hum life in the U.S., she wanted to go and carry the gospel to the nations. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going. And I'm like, well, you go, girl. Because I'm not. I'm staying in Texas. All right? So I do want to marry you, but I'm not leaving Texas. And she was like, well, I am. I'm leaving this country to carry the gospel to other lands. And I'm like, well, we have a problem. We have to get counseling. 
We had to seriously work through this. This is no easy thing for us. It almost broke us up. We almost didn't get married over this. Sometimes you don't know what to do. Sometimes you have situations that are difficult. And you have to say, God, I don't know what to do. Like in a situation, do I pray, God, change Bonnie's heart? How do I pray that? She wants to carry the gospel to other lands. How do I possibly pray, God, change her heart? Now, could she pray, God, change Matthew's heart? But I had a conviction that I wanted to lead a local church, and as far as I knew, in the U.S. Not an evil desire. Due to our weaknesses, due to the fact that we don't have infinite wisdom, and according to this text, we're weak, and we don't even know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit, praise be to God, intercedes for you and for me. We see this in the second half of verse 26. It says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there's two key words in this verse. Whenever we read the Bible, it's very important that, that you, you look at three things. One, you have to say, what does God's word say? So you're looking at your observations. So you're making observations. What does God's word say? And then you ask the second question. What does God's word mean? So this is the meaning, the interpretation. And then lastly, how must I change? This is the application. So you always start with observation. And then what is the meaning? And then what is the application? How must I change in light of this text? And so you look at the key words. What is God saying here? And there's two key words here. He has a key word that says, helps and intercedes, is what the Spirit does in this verse. So that's what we're observing here. He helps and he intercedes. And so what does the word help mean? Ask the question, what does it mean? Observe the key word, what does it mean? Well, the word help means to help lift a heavy load. That's what the, that, that's what the context here is referring to, lifting a heavy load. Now, all of us know this. We're in Abu Dhabi. We all move a lot, right? Your, your homeowner won't fix the leak or the AC, so you move out of your villa, right? Or there's mold in the wall or whatever. Someone has to move often in Abu Dhabi. And so we know about moving. A lot of you every year move. Now, that's not fun for any of us, but it's part of life in Abu Dhabi. And when you move, do you do it alone? No. No. No one relocates alone. You don't box everything alone and carry every box by yourself. What do you need? Help. When you, when you have a washing machine on the third floor, you need help getting it down to the, the truck. You need help carrying a heavy load. The Holy Spirit does not look at you when you're carrying your loads in life and he's just sitting there in tea time sipping his ruibos. Eh, South Africans, I got it. I like that tea, by the way. He doesn't just sit there drinking tea. He rolls up his sleeves, and he helps to pick up the heavy load. That's what the Spirit does. That's the reference. He helps. He picks up the load to help you carry it. That's the imagery here. He's helping, but he's also interceding. But what does the word interceding mean? It means to intervene on behalf of another. It means to be a mediator, a, a go-between. And so to be an interceder, he's interceding, means 
to intervene on behalf of another. So how does the Spirit do that? How does He intervene on our behalf while helping us carry this load of life and these burdens? How does He do that? It's amazing language. He says He does it with groanings too deep for words. That's how He intercedes, with groanings too deep for words. You're wondering, yeah, I got nothing. I don't know what that means. Help me understand. What is the meaning of this? And furthermore, who's groaning? Is it the Spirit who's groaning? Or or is it talking about we, people, who are groaning? It's important for us to understand this, that what we have here, this discussion of groaning too deep for words, is we can have pain, we can have confusion, we can have frustration in life. And it's not just pastors, everyone has these things. All right, everyone has confusion and frustrations. But deep down inside, we desire something. We desire to glorify Christ. Why? Because we have His Spirit. We've seen, like we sung, we've seen the glory of the Lord. We've seen a glimpse of His infinite majesty. And so we want to reflect that. We want to, to have the world know who Jesus is. And we want to live lives that are reflecting that. We want that. But sometimes, when, the, when, when decisions come our way, we don't know how. And we can't really see sometimes how God is going to redeem a situation. We don't know what He's going to do to, quote, fix it. So this text here is describing how our souls can groan, how our souls can be anxious or be frustrated or confused and in pain even. So this is our groans. We're the ones that are groaning in this text. But you also see that it's the Spirit who is groaning because He is directing the groans in us. Remember, the Holy Spirit indwells believers. This is in the same chapter, in the context. The Spirit of God interwines with your human spirit. And so He is creating desires inside of you. He is creating a yearning to please Jesus, to hate your sin, and to love the things that God loves. And so the Spirit is even groaning here, but you're wondering, well, what is the Spirit groaning about? The Holy Spirit is interceding, going on behalf of us, by creating in us, and then by even directing this groaning, this ache inside of us, this deep ache inside of our souls where we want Christ to be revealed. We want Christ to be revealed in, through our lives. We want that, but sometimes it's hard and we're, we're anxious or it's challenging and the Spirit is even creating these desires. And so how does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit intercede through this groaning too deep for words? Well, He is moving powerfully in our hearts. The Spirit is active, and He's working in your heart. And He's creating groanings. He's creating desires for you to accomplish God's will. That's what it says here. He accomplished it according to God's will. And so what you have is the Spirit interceding by creating a deep desire inside of you for Christ to be glorified. And with us having a weakness that leaves us not knowing how exactly it's going to work out. But the Spirit is creating and directing these desires in us. 
the, the amazing pastor, John Calvin of the 16th century, wrote this. He says, the Spirit is said to intercede, not because he really humbles himself to pray or to groan, but because he stirs up in our hearts those desires which we ought to entertain. And he also affects our hearts in such a way that these desires, by their fervency, penetrate heaven itself. He stirs in us a desire to pray, a desire to live for Jesus. And he helps us to pray. And it penetrates heaven. And so sometimes we are not sure how to pray. Sometimes we don't know. It's too painful, too hard, too frustrating. We can't even pray. We don't even know how sometimes. So we're not sure how, but we are sure that we want to glorify Christ. We're sure of that. And so where does this leave you and me with the Spirit having these groans that are His groans that we feel and express as our groans that are coming from the Spirit and ache for Christ's glory to be manifested in the middle of frustration or confusion, where does that leave you and me? Resting in God. That's where it leaves us, truly resting in Him. You can pray for clarity. You can pray for wisdom. And according to James 1, we should pray for wisdom. And sometimes God does reveal. And as we draw near to the heart of God, His Spirit will lead you and he'll make it clear as you're abiding in Christ. We have to do the heart work, which is hard work, to check our motives, to make sure that this is coming from the Spirit and not from our own selfish desires. But when you're resting, communing, living a life, following Christ, you can trust without a shadow of a doubt that he is going to take the circumstances, and he's going to use them for his glory. And so we trust that God is faithful. You rest in him knowing that he loves you. Even if you're confused and don't know how it's going to work out, you don't really know what's happening or how it's going to work out. That's okay. God knows. He is faithful. You can trust him. And when you can hardly even pray, you trust him. You know, it's been said that if you want to really humble a Christian, just ask him a question. How is your prayer life? Because all of us can struggle with this. All of us can. Why? Well, because we're sinful, because we're weak. But a second reason why it's a struggle sometimes is, you know why? Because it's spiritual warfare. Because Satan doesn't want you to have a life of prayer. He doesn't want you to. Why? Because he knows that prayer is a fuel for you living a life that's gospel-centered. He doesn't want that. And so he's going to do whatever he can with circumstances and to tempt you and to have excuses so that you don't really pray, so that you don't have the spiritual vitality to be focused on Christ. So we have to fight the good fight and fight against Satan and our own desires and our own laziness and with our schedules that are going to be so hectic and make time to pray, to commune with God, and ask for wisdom. And when you honestly don't know, you trust God. You rest in Him. He won't give up on you. 
The cross proves that he will not give up on you. He delights in you, and he wants you to delight in him, and you express that by praying. Let's move this quickly before our time expires. Second truth. First, the Spirit helps by interceding for us. Secondly, according to God's will. So the Spirit helps disciples to follow Jesus by interceding for us according to God's will. See then in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so the Father searches hearts, and he knows what's in our hearts, and he hears our groanings. He hears the ache to glorify Christ. He hears then the Spirit, which is making requests on our behalf. And what is Spirit asking for? He is asking that the will of God be accomplished. The Spirit, most of all, delights in the Son and wants to glorify the Son and delight in the Father and glorify the Father. And so the Spirit is asking that Christ be glorified. This is according to God's will. And so whenever we ask any question, and it's God, how can I best glorify Jesus? We're asking the right question. And God will always answer if our heart's desire is to glorify Christ. And he's going to use the circumstances, and he's going to make it clear. Even when it's difficult, you don't lose heart. So when you're confused and when you're in pain over a decision, you think God looks down and condemns you? Oh, idiot, how come you don't know? Why are you so dumb? You can't figure, you, you think God thinks that way? No, God doesn't condemn you. God knows that we're human and we're weak. And so what does he do? He sends his spirit to intercede. He affirms you. He delights in you. He loves you. And he's not frustrated with you when you're confused. He's not. He's compassionate and he's kind. And you can rest knowing that God is going to bring about the exact circumstances that will allow you to glorify Christ in your life. So you can trust him. The Spirit takes our prayers, literally, he takes them up to heaven and God answers according to his will. And so Bonnie and I decided to get married. Despite this tension that was there, we chose to get married. We thought we love each other, and we're equally yoked, and I couldn't imagine life without her, and she the same way for me, believe it or not. She actually felt that way, and we got married. And for 12 years, she would, about once a year, ask the question, so... What do you think about leaving the country and looking for a ministry elsewhere? And I would say to her, no, I told you every year, no, no, we're not leaving Texas. But she didn't hound me. She didn't harass me. She was praying, trusting God in her confusion in seeing God, you've called me to this and it's not happening, but I rest in you. Twelve years later, God worked circumstances and radically changed my heart. And serving this church is a direct answer to prayers that were mere groanings too deep for words, where we didn't even know. We had no idea how God was going to work it out. 
We've had no idea. And so serving this church is a direct answer to a prayer that God put in a nine-year-old little girl that she was called to take the gospel to the nations. And God is faithful. God is always faithful. And he will work circumstances and you can trust him. He'll give you the wisdom. You rely on him as he intercedes for you. He's not hiding his will from you. It's not like that. He'll make it clear. You follow him. You trust the Spirit. Now here's the reality. Some of you in the room might say, all right, Pastor, nice story how God worked it out for you and Bonnie, but that didn't happen for me because I prayed. I really prayed and my mother still died. I prayed and I still still don't have a wife. I pray, and I still have a crummy job. And it's not working out. And some of you are praying, and it's not going the way you would think, or it ended very painfully in a way that you would think that God is not good or that He's not really there. I can't possibly answer why those things happen. I, I don't know why your job is difficult or why the loved one died or why the marriage failed. I, I don't have infinite wisdom. But here's what I do know. That God is still good. And God is on His throne. And God has a plan that He's working according to His good will as we see in verse 27. And we know that he's going to work it for good. And we'll see that next week in verses 28 through 30. That God has a good plan and he's working it for good. And I know that there is healing and there is restoration and there is purpose even in your pain. God has a plan. Don't give up on him because he has certainly not give up on you. He has a plan so that your life can reflect his glory. You can trust Him. Rest knowing that He is in control. Prayer changes you. Prayer may not change the circumstances, but prayer will change you. It will change your heart. God has a, His will. He has a plan. He's working it. You can trust Him on that. Your job is to trust Him. And as we pray, as we draw near to His heart in prayer, we're the ones that are changed. Why? Because God's presence transforms us. Think back to Exodus, our previous teaching series. Moses was in God's presence and he came down and he was shining, radiating God's glory. God's presence changes people. And it's God's presence as you pray and abide in Christ, as you read and meditate, that is what will change you. And even if circumstances go from bad to worse, you can still have joy because you can delight in Christ because He will satisfy you. He is sufficient. So we trust Him. Will you commit to a life of prayer? Will we commit to this as we commune with Him? Spirit will help you. Help us carry the load. 
It doesn't carry the whole load. The reference is that he picks up part. It's a cooperation when it comes to growing in your faith. Sanctification is a process where you yield to the Spirit. And prayer is how we commune with Him.